A lot of taco takes coming in, Jamie. A lot of taco takes. We will get to some of them here. People in on salad, people out on salad. Some very pertinent questions being asked when it comes to Taco Tuesday. What's allowed, what's acceptable. I am far more inclusive than you, but we can get to those in yes, just one that's second. Right. <laughs> 960-960-650-650. I tease that there is a team out there in Western Canada that has said, yep, 100% vaccinated. It is the Calgary Flames. I have not yet seen anything from the Vancouver Canucks. I imagine these questions are going to be asked of most organizations right now. We heard Mitch Marner, as you talked about earlier, say 100% vaccinated. Kyle Dubas said, yep, we intend to be 100% vaccinated. He said that last week. Marner Echoed that today. You saw the Carolina Hurricanes put out a social media post. Flyers GM Chuck Fletcher says the team will be fully vaccinated for the start of the season. Quote, we're basically there now. And Eric Francis reporting that when Flames Camp opens next Wednesday, 100% vaccinated as well. And you really do get the sense, don't you, Scotty? I mean, already you ran down the list that we've heard just today, just this morning, right, from around the NHL. You do get the sense that it's going to be a lot more of the same over the next couple of days as teams start to, you know, get back into action here as, t- as training camps start to open up. I think we're going to be hearing a lot of similar announcements and from teams that aren't in a position to make that announcement. I think I wouldn't be surprised to see some public pressure applied on the holdouts as well, given what it could mean uh, as a competitive disadvantage this year. Agree with that wholeheartedly and likely you won't hear too many people talking about that. I don't know if it will leak out we wondered that aloud jamie when the rules came in what a couple weeks ago two or three weeks yep. ago and the nhl came down elliot friedman reported it, and then we saw what the edict looked like hey here's the deal if you're vaccinated here's the deal if you're not it's going to be tough on you and many of you may not be allowed to cross the border we said are there going to be any high profile holdouts are there is there going to be an nhl version of cole beasley given what hockey has been and what we consider quote-unquote hockey culture I doubt that you're going to see it. I still feel that way, even though there may be some holdouts. I'm not sure you're going to see those holdouts take their fight or their stance public unless somebody else finds out about it first. Well, and just look where we are already with the rates compared to where we were at the equivalent time of the NFL calendar, right? I mean, we're ta- we're already seeing teams come out and say 100% vaccinated. We're already hearing, you know, for the league as a whole, it could be as high as 95% plus that of players that have already been fully vaccinated, you know, and that's pre-training camp. That's before they've, you know, had the chance to be back in town and, and see what life as an unvaccinated player would look like. And you just go back to the NFL calendar. I mean, it was much, much, much lower before training camps kicked in, before the preseason really got going, right? And then we saw the number ramp up significantly. So I think it's just it's just going to be a much more difficult environment because of hockey culture, what you said as well, Scotty, because of where the rates already are, because of the rules, everything. It's going to be much, much harder to take that kind of stand and to be as public and forceful about it as a guy like Cole Beasley or Kirk Cousins or Lamar Jackson have been. We're only nine or ten days away from camps opening around the National Hockey League. Some will open Wednesday next week. Some will open on Thursday. And, Jamie, there are still some high-profile players who are not signed. That is well-known by Vancouver Canucks fan and fans, and as, as has been pointed out by many, look, you're not alone. There are some other people out there. Interesting report today from Michael Russo who covers the Minnesota Wild for the Athletic. He is certainly one of the standards there, and he breaks news all the time. His latest report, Jamie, says 
negotiations between Kirill Kaprizov and the Minnesota Wild have hit a snag. And to put this in context, Bill Guerin, according to Russo, and we've watched his reporting, Bill Guerin has said for quite some time, look, this isn't a big deal. Things are in a good place. We're going to get there. The way that Russo portrays it in his latest piece is that there's a little bit of a sense of frustration and that impasse is too strong of a word, but the Wild really feel like they've put their best foot forward here, and so far it's fallen on deaf ears as far as a signature is concerned. Yeah, and the quote that probably stands out the most is from Garen saying there are going to be some obstacles, and, and that's uh, from, as as Russo says, an exasperated-sounding Garen on Monday night. So, yeah, it's an admission at the very least that not everything is going smoothly. And the interesting thing with Kaprizov's situation is because he's in Russia, it's not as if, okay, you put pen to paper and then you're on the ice the next day with your team, right? There's the matter of the work visa. There's a matter of getting to Minnesota, and that brings, you know, COVID-19 quarantine period as well before you can get into the team's facility. So I think that's probably the bigger source of frustration is that they've let it get to a point where, you know, even if they reach out, if even if they somehow reach a deal today, he's probably not going to be there for day one of training camp. Now, that's not the biggest deal in the world, but they've let the timeline there get to a point where, okay, you know, we, we're, we're, he's going to miss some team activities here, and that's probably not ideal. I don't know what term is being offered by the Minnesota Wild, and Russo didn't seem to know either. He said there's a variety of terms, but basically he said this, the Wild's offer is believed to start with a nine. Yeah, like 9 point what, 9.0, whatever. And he pointed out in his article, hey, here are the wingers in the National Hockey League that make $9 million or more. And Jeff Skinner is the anomaly on the list. We all know how bad that contract is and that it's nowhere near the value. Artemi Panarin's at the top. He's an 11.6 hit, followed closely by Mitch Marner, Patrick Kane, Jamie Benn, Nikita Kucherov, Mark Stone, Alex Ovechkin, and Mikko Rantanen rounding out the group. Obviously, I mentioned Skinner there as well. None of those players outside of Rantanen were signing this early, and none of those players were signing after so little work in the National Hockey League, which, again, isn't everything because Kaprizov, he's done his thing in the KHL. He's done his thing internationally with the Russians at the 2018 Olympics as well. Scored the clinching goal there to win a gold medal. It's not as though there's no hockey to base this on. It's just that there's not as much NHL hockey to base it on. So if that is true, if the Minnesota Wild have offered him something that has a nine in front of it, I can understand the frustration that it hasn't been signed. Yep. Oh, absolutely. He has 55 games in the NHL, right? And they were a dynamic, exciting 55 games in the NHL, but it's still an incredibly small sample size to be guaranteeing that kind of salary to a player, right? Like you can understand why that would make the Minnesota Wilds pretty nervous, despite the track record, the long track record he has in the NA or in the KHL, I should say. I will say, look, if you're a Minnesota Minnesota Wild fan looking for reasons to be optimistic about that, you know, Bill Guerin also said at another point in the article, look, we're close. Like, we're very close, actually, here. The numbers we're exchanging are close. It's just sometimes that last little bit can be the most difficult thing to get through. And you would think, you know, maybe from the outside looking in, if we knew the exact numbers they were talking about, we might look at it and say, oh, come on, if you're that close, how can you not do a deal? But for whatever reason, both sides just dig in a little bit. But I will say, when you are very, very close... 
things can change in a hurry, right? It only takes one phone call, one text between the general manager and the agent, or even one phone call from the player to the agent saying, you know what, I want to get over there. Let's just get this done. And things can change very, very fast if the margin of difference here is as small as Garen kind of hints at in the article. There's another article out there today. It's by Bruce Garriock in Ottawa saying that he believes there's been a Thomas Shabbat contract put in front of Brady Kachuk. And if you're searching your memory, you can't remember what the Shabbat contract looks like. That was an 8 by 8 deal yep. for the for the RFA defenseman. And Garriock saying, yeah, a lot of people believe that's what's been put in front of Brady Kachuk in Ottawa. And yet that has not been signed yet either. What does any of this, Jamie, does any of it all, or all of it, does it mean something in Vancouver where they also have a free agent forward of the restricted variety who is not yet under contract in Elias Pettersson? I'm not sure it does mean all of that much because I don't look at Kaprizov as a real comparable for Elias Pettersson, and I don't really look at Brady Kachuk as a comparable either, just based on the fact that they play on the wing and Elias Pettersson plays center, right? And then with Kaprizov, you have the entire other situation of, okay, you're judging him partly on what he's done in one NHL season, but you're also taking into account everything he did in Europe in the KHL as a as a pro as well. So I think the situations are different enough that I wouldn't read too much into it. Now, th- obviously there are some similarities in the situations, right? Which is that, hey, training camp starts next week and we would really like to have these guys under contract and it's coming down to the wire. But I- I'm not sure I see a direct comparison between the two situations. The one that probably affects Pedersen the most, if either of them do, is the Kaprizov contract. Yeah. He plays a different position. He's older, but this is a guy who won a Calder Trophy as well. And the reason I say it affects it is that if you're Elias Pettersson's camp, you probably want to wait for as much information as possible, and you're hoping that number goes as high as possible so that your ask can be as high as possible as well back to the Vancouver Canucks. But what makes Vancouver's situation so interesting, and, and I also agree that it's different, and if I'm the Canucks, I'm looking at it saying, that doesn't affect us. That guy's talked about going to play in the KHL, which isn't going to happen with Elias Pettersson. And he doesn't have the same body of work. He's a winger. So that situation has nothing to do. If I'm the Canucks, that's what I'm saying. But if I'm CAA and I'm the agent for Elias Pettersson, I'm saying, no, no, this affects it. We want to see what guys like this are getting paid. And and we think our player is actually more valuable to your operation overall. Well, and you always gets... get into this situation. Sorry, Scott, you get into the situation with RFAs when there's multiple ones sitting there, right, that probably Brady Kachuk is thinking the same thing, right? Hey, I want to see what Kaprizov gets. I want to see what the market, where the market is set, and Kaprizov might be looking at Kachuk and Pedersen thinking the same thing, right? I, I want to see what those guys get before I, you know, make a final kind of ask to Minnesota. And so where it gets complicated in Vancouver, as we've laid out a number of times, is that Every dollar that Elias Pettersson or Quinn Hughes takes means, at least for the time being, a dollar out of the other's pocket. Vancouver can exceed the salary cap by a certain amount, but if you've been paying attention to this story all along, Vancouver's got between 15 and $16 million for this season to get these two players under contract. And so it has likely led to a bridge for at least one, if not both, of these particular players. And, And that differs from the other situation as well. I think Kaprizov affects it a little bit. I don't think... Kachuk affects it 
whatsoever unless he smashes one out of the park. And then you're, if you're looking at term and you're Elias Pettersson, which most people don't believe he is, that he's looking for something a little bit shorter, then all of a sudden you go, well, hold on a second. If they're paying Brady Kachuk this, let's have a conversation. Yeah, but I don't get the sense that Brady Kachuk is going to smash one out of the park. Just knowing that franchise and that organization in Ottawa, I don't think they're interested in setting a new high watermark for an RFA winger coming off his ELC. West End Mike says Caprizo's 55 NHL games were also only played against LA, Arizona, San Jose, Anaheim. Obviously, a few more teams than that. He performed well against Vegas. He played against Colorado. But I understand your point. It's in a very different environment. Very different environment. Good point. Jamie says the next text is Pedersen in Vancouver to avoid any delays. I don't have a locator on it, but I believe Elias Pedersen is in the lower mainland right now. Is he not? I would, I mean, we might be able to get uh, confirmation from our op Chris Faber on that, but that was my understanding. I stand to be corrected there, though. Uh, Dave, do you have an IG update for us? Let me follow (laughs) Elias Let me get to the IG right now. It's, you know what? I would say I haven't seen a story in a couple days. So I haven't seen a story from Pedersen in a couple days, but maybe two or three days ago I did see him in Sweden. Oh, he was in Sweden. Okay, thank you very much. All right. All right. There you go. Got to get the got to get the paperwork in order and everything, but we will see when he arrives in the lower mainland. Scott Rental, it's Jamie Dodd, Chris Faber, Opping, Roger Shergill producing the show today. Keep those texts coming in. We talked about the NFL game off the top, Jamie. We focused a lot on the Raiders. I did say I wanted to get Lamar Jackson at some point of the program. That point is now. Lamar Jackson did some more Lamar Jackson things last night, and it wasn't just with his feet. Those are the ones that grabbed most of the attention. They got some last night. He made some great throws last night. He made a great throw to put the Ravens in what looked to be positioned to win the football game. They kicked what many thought was going to be the game-winning field goal, only to see the Ragers charge back down the field, tie things up, and send it to overtime. It always seems to be the same thing with Lamar Jackson. No matter how many highlights he produces, fantasy points he puts up, it comes it comes back to this one talking point. Can he improve more as a passer? Do you believe he can? How much do you believe he needs to improve as a passer? I think he can improve as a passer, and I do think he needs to. Not by a lot. Not He doesn't have to completely revolutionize himself as a passer, but I do think he needs to get better. There were moments in that game where he did not look comfortable in the pocket. Now, I will say a major caveat is the offensive line didn't have a good night. And we talked earlier in the program, Scotty, about how good the Vegas Raiders defensive line was, and especially Max Crosby and Yannick Ngakwe getting after Lamar Jackson. They were fantastic. But, you know, Lamar, theoretically, as a very, very mobile quarterback, he should be able to cope with that pocket collapsing a little bit. And I thought there were times where he just didn't look sharp. He didn't make good throws. Those are the kinds of things you would like to see him clean up. He's still, you know, this whole idea of, oh, teams have figured him out, and now that the tape is out, you're going you're gonna to shut down Lamar Jackson. No, you're not, because he's such a dynamic runner, and he had a couple of runs last night that really just got you out of your seat, where it looked like he was going to be tackled, and then all of a sudden it's a 20-yard carry going the other way. But I do think that he's still missing throws that you want your franchise quarterback to be hitting on a regular basis, and I think we saw that again last night. Yeah, I agree. And in overtime, Mark Andrews didn't help him out. That's a ball he he needs nope. to hang on to, given the payday they just gave him. But it was the next play where I said, that's where I want to see a little more improvement. That next play, 
Lamar Jackson, yeah, the pocket's starting to collapse around him. He has an opportunity to step up and to his right. And even if he chooses not to do that, he's got a stick route there in the middle of the field. And it's there, and it's within his vision, and he doesn't throw it. And that is that has often been the complaint with Lamar Jackson as a passer as well. It's not always the, hey, what type of football does he throw? Does he put the right touch on it in right situations? It's, does he hold on to the ball too long? Does yeah. he wait just a little bit longer because he has the arm strength to make some throws that other guys do not? He has the escapability where he can hang in there and do Houdini-like things that other players in this league can't do. That's the part that I want to see an improvement in. I'm with you. I believe he is capable of getting there. I'm a Lamar Jackson fan. I would love to be able to go to a game and see him play live. I would sign up for that any day of the week. But that's where I want to see the improvement. Yes, and it there is legitimate room for improvement. And this is not about – I think we're on the same page on this, Scotty. You know, this is not about – you hear people saying, ah, Lamar Jackson can't do enough in the pocket. They'll never win with him. No, I don't believe that for a second. With the other abilities that he has – and it's not as if he's a terrible passer. He can make some really impressive throws. As you said, he showed that even last night when he didn't have his best game. But I also think you still see those moments where whether it's just a little off on a, on a, bit of, on a you know, pretty basic throw and doesn't give his target a chance to make a play or it's leaving a play on the field for whatever reason, if he doesn't see it, if he just chooses not to, not to make the play, if it's not responding when the pocket is collapsing a little bit, there's just those moments where to take that next step, you'd like to see him be a little bit more consistent and clean it up a little bit. I think he has the talent. I clearly think he has the talent. And frankly, even if he doesn't improve, you know, he can still give the team a really good chance to win week in, week out. But there is that room for improvement still. The guy on the other side of the ball missed a bunch of throws last night too. But we know what Derek Carr is, and we don't think that there's a higher ceiling for Derek Carr. Like, we know the range of what Derek Carr is going to be in the National Football League. And obviously, if Lamar Jackson can take one or two steps, it's outrageous some of the things he'd be able to do. And Derek Carr, he's just never going to get that. doesn't mean you can't win with Derek Carr. doesn't mean that you'll never win playoff games, anything like that. But we know what the ceiling is for the player. It's just baked in, right? You just expect those sorts of plays forever from Derek Carr because we've seen them consistently, right? Okay, yeah, he's going to miss receivers. He's going to have... Darren Waller pretty wide open. He's going to throw it behind him. That's going to happen with Derek Carr. And I guess, you know, you could argue, well, maybe we should just be expecting that with Lamar Jackson. But because of his physical gifts, I think we're always going to feel like the ceiling is so much higher and that he has the ability to get at least closer to that ceiling even than he is right now. We're going to talk a little bit of football, some baseball as well. We'll head down to the Emerald City next and hook up with Ian Furness, our good buddy from Seattle, right here on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. We've got listeners canvassing their coworkers, Jamie, taking a straw poll on the job site to find out if taco salad qualifies for Taco Tuesday. <laughs> as it should. Hey, as it should. Take the real questions, the ones that matter. To the listeners, to the people on the street, Miner Matt reporting that there are three nays, or pardon me, three yays, no. yeah, that qualifies, yes. and eight and eight nays saying no, it does not. I do need to know if Miner Matt presented it with, look, we're not talking taco salad without some sort of tortilla element to it. You either have tortilla chips or perhaps you have the hard tortilla. I am firmly on the side of taco salad qualifying for Taco Tuesday. You have been taking up the nay conversation. Yes. 
Because it's not a handheld. Even with the tortilla bowl, it's not a handheld. It's just not a taco. It's a taco salad. It's different. It's it's not a taco. And I think that on Taco Tuesday, we should confine it strictly to tacos. And I'm glad to see the wisdom of the work site coming through from Minor Matt there with the, the nays on my side heavily, heavily winning the poll. Jamie Dodd, not inclusive, is what I'm hearing. That's East right. Van that's Tommy. Right. That's East my, Van... I would say that's my brand, Scotty. So you heard me get Donovan Bennett to waffle and come around to my way of thinking if it's served in a taco bowl. You heard him come around on that. East Van Tommy says, if you need a utensil to eat it, it's not a taco. My counter to Tommy is, okay, but what if we're doing this with tortilla chips, and that is your utensil? It's almost like an incredible nacho. I'm not going to call it a nacho because it's still a taco salad, Jamie. But if you're using the tortilla chips to lift that food into your trap, I think that is part of the part of the argument against what Eastman Tommy is saying. Well, no, but then it's more of a dip. Like to me, that's a dip. It's not a if dip. you're using the chip, it's it's but it's getting closer to a dip. It's taking it almost out of the taco range and getting it more into the dip range. If you're talking about using a chip to eat it with. Sparky says take a broken taco shell because there's always at least one in the box. He's talking about the hard taco shells. Toast that and crumble it onto your taco salad. Now that's a deconstructed taco. All of the components are there, says Sparky. We have uh, Josh in Chestermere in the Calgary inbox 960-960 says it's a deconstructed taco, but it's still 100% taco. I liked Donovan's response to that argument. Yeah, a pile of bricks, you can call it a deconstructed house, but it's not a house. We know what a house is, and a deconstructed taco is not a taco. It's just a bunch of ingredients. Well, I didn't mean to put holes into Donovan's argument at the time. I had to challenge him on the taco bowl element of this conversation, but... A house is just not bricks, Jamie. There are many more elements involved. And as you would agree, it's not just a taco shell that we're talking about here. We're talking about an entire taco. Right, but if you have, fine, if you have the entire components and material components of a house in piles, that's not a house. That's, That's the ingredients of a house, but it's not... It's not a house, and I think the same thing applies here. It's not a taco. I'm not, no. and I have nothing against taco salads. Go Literally nuts, you fill your boots. Just not part of Taco Tuesday. Oh, it's part of Taco Tuesday. I want to get to this one from Travis in Calgary. He says, we just made tacos for our wedding on the long weekend. 180 people, about 700 tacos. I almost burned down my house making the chicken, but the tacos <laughs> were the bomb, though. That's awesome. That's a very that good taco fantastic. story. That's a great meal to serve at a wedding as well. I love it. Thinking a little outside the box. Who wouldn't be excited to show up and and chow down on some tacos there? We knew this was going to be the major talking point of the show today when we invite our good friend from Seattle, Ian Furness. He's on KJR 1-3 to in the afternoon, Q13 Sports as well, and he joins us here today. Ian, on this fine Taco Tuesday, how are you today? I'm good, fellas. Uh, Good afternoon. Good morning, I guess. All right. Answer the pressing question of the day. Does taco salad qualify on Taco Tuesday? Um, oh, boy. All right. Luckily, I don't know what side I'm taking here. But, <laughs> yeah, I would say yes because it's the first word in taco salad is taco, correct? Yes, sir. All right. So it's taco meat. I think because we're trying now you're trying to distinguish between what is a taco and defining what a taco is. It's that's hard because there's the hard shell corn tortilla taco 
there's the soft, you know, burrito style taco and what differentiates a burrito from a taco, right? Usually it's beans, but you can put beans in a taco, but then you could just have what you would call a bowl, a taco bowl or AKA a taco salad. So yeah, all inclusive, I think. That so, is a so well-constructed argument. Yeah. I, I was on the other side of things. I said, no, I'm not counting a taco salad in Taco Tuesday. And my, one of my arguments was, you know, if your buddy invites you, hey, we're going to do Taco Tuesday, come on over, and you get there and he serves you a taco salad, I think there's going to be an element of disappointment because you were expecting the genuine article. So maybe I'm just a traditionalist on this topic, but I would exclude taco salads from the Taco Tuesday well, for, domain. First of all, First of all, you're finding a new friend because what kind of, <laughs> you know, unsophisticated Neanderthal would at least give you the option of hard shell tortilla or just a bowl slash salad? I mean, that is, that's you got to find a new friend at that point, man. Great, great arguments coming from Ian Furness. I expected nothing less. It's why I invite him on this program. Let's talk about what's going on down in Seattle right now. As you can imagine, north of the border, and yes, certainly in the city in which I reside, there are some Mariners fans, but you know how many people across Canada love the Toronto Blue Jays. You're reminded of it every time the Jays and Mariners play a series in your city in better times, and people are allowed to cross the border. Where are people at on the Mariners right now in Seattle and their push for the postseason? Um, they're okay. They, you know, the crowds aren't great. Uh, I don't think that they really – it's weird. If they were, like, leading the division and making a playoff push in that regard, I think it would be one thing. But instead, it's – you know, they're in that group of, what, what is it, six teams for two spots, basically. And, you know, playing that musical chairs game. And I just think that there's – and rightfully so because of history, there's no belief that they're actually going to win it and get there. Uh, there's, I would say that the enthusiasm is tempered a little bit. Um, you know, the, the excitement level is tepid. So it's, it's not what you would expect or hope for, but also when you haven't been in the postseason in 20 years, uh, you're two out with 18 left. You lost, basically you lost, what, four of five games to the Royals and the Diamondbacks, something like that over the last two weekend home series, the worst teams in baseball. So then you come back and you beat the good team. So no one really knows what to think. It's kind of football season, but, you know, if they get on a little bit of a roll, they've never, they haven't had a longer winning streak this year, Scotty, than five games. So it's, 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 even though they're hanging around, they're still the Mariners. They haven't really got hot. And I think there's still a lack of belief and nobody, you know, nobody likes to be disappointed over and over again. And that's what this team usually does. Yeah, it does feel like the burden of history weighs heavily on the fan base, if not this team, because despite what the numbers say and the run differential and all of that, I'm not sure I can remember in the last certainly 10 years a more clutch Mariners team. They have come up massive late in games, Ian, haven't they? They're the best. I'm trying to think what the number is off the top of my head here in the car, but they're their averages, well, just all of it, uh, average OPS on base percentage, slugging percentage, their, their numbers are the highest in Major League Baseball this year in high leverage situations. In, you know, low leverage, you know, obviously, you know, not a big, you know, a big score differential or early in a baseball game, which is not considered high leverage, they're one of the worst, if not the worst, hitting baseball teams. So it's just a really crazy, you know, flip of the switch big-time moment, 
they're really good. If it's just, you know, second inning, third inning, they're not very good, which would help, which would lead you to believe if they did get to the playoffs, they might be a fun team to watch and maybe dangerous if they could win that first, uh, that first round wild card game. Is there something beyond just kind of random luck that you think explains why they've performed so much better in those close games? Or, or is, as I said, is it just a matter of, you know, that's when they've happened to get their hits in? I, I it just, I, I'll give I'll give credit to the manager. I think you have to give credit to the manager. It's it's the you know the one leadership position in sports that everyone says doesn't matter. But I think Scott Service has just been a remarkable manager for this team. There's a there's a belief factor. They don't give up. You know, a lot of times in baseball, you you know you you quote give away at bats. Well, a lot of times late in the game, and if you're down or you know what have you, you just just want to get out of there. You literally do give away at bats. This team never does that. And I think that comes straight from the manager. Uh, I don't think it comes from anybody else. It comes from Scott Service. And, you know, they compete till the end. And, you know, that's I think I think it just goes straight to him. Outside of that, it might just be blind luck. Yeah. yeah you know, as you said earlier, Ian, there doesn't seem to be a ton of expectation among the fans for them to actually get into the postseason this year. But with what you're talking about and what Scott Service has done and the way, you know, they don't give up on at-bats, does, is there at least a feeling of, okay, hey, maybe we're going to fall short this season, but we're building something here, and this can be a found What we're doing this year and hanging in down the stretch can be a foundation that we can build on next year and beyond. Well, that's where the fan that's – a, that's a great question because that's where the fan base is split. Right? And, it's, and if you look at the roster carefully, that's, that's where the roster truly is, a, is kind of – it's, it's interesting, and it's also a confusing roster as well for this reason. They are, right now, a team that there's a lot of unknowns for next season. So, like, I hear all the time, well, you know, you can make the argument this they're building to next year. And DePoto, the, man, the general manager, who just got extended, he'll tell you that. Well, okay, but how? Like, do we know that Toro's a second baseman? Uh, are we sure Crawford's your shortstop? We kind of think that the middle infield's okay. Seager, they have to exercise a club option that – come to find out the money is more significant than we thought maybe 20 million plus for one more year so if you do that can i get a third baseman ty france seems to be your everyday first baseman but you have a contract with evan white who's been out for most of the year who was a gold glover last year at least in name so is your infield set or not that's a question mark you can make an argument strongly if they extend steger seager you have no problems in the infield i think your outfield's a mess right now they'll try to tell you otherwise but you try kyle lewis can't stay healthy uh you know, Kelnick hasn't hit. Fraley seems to be a good option as maybe a fourth outfielder, but we're not sure if he's an everyday guy. Uh, Mitch Hanniger is a free agent. So where are we at in the outfield? The bullpen's been good, but those guys are come and go. They've just been kind of caught lightning in a bottle this year. We'll see how many of those guys are back. And then the starting rotation, you got to feel great about Logan Gilbert. You feel pretty good about Marco Gonzalez, second half of the year. Kikuchi's been an absolute dumpster fire since the All-Star break. You can't count on him, and you got a contract situation there you got to consider. And, you know, Anderson seems to be a rental player. Who am I missing? Dunn and Sheffield been out most of the year. So uh, they've got a lot of question marks. I I don't know, man. I Baseball's a weird sport. To me, if you got a chance to go for it, you go for it and try to get in and get to the playoffs and see what happens. They didn't do that. They did nothing at the trade deadline, and that was massively disappointing. Well, and I know, Ian, that there was a lot of anger even at the front office around the trade deadline and before, of course, because they make the trade with Houston, who they're chasing in the division. That upset, I think, a lot of fans. I think even players on the team were upset by that. Now, they do get Abraham Toro back in that deal. He's been really good 
for Seattle. Has the anger at the front office softened at all as they've played pretty well down the stretch here? Uh, I say, again, that's where the fan base is split. Some say yes, some say no. The Toro deal looks to be okay. He was really good the first you know few weeks. He's really tailed off. Uh, so I think he's still a, a question mark and a work in progress. Uh, Castillo was really hasn't been Castillo hasn't been as good as Graveman was. If you want to make that a one for one deal, even though you got Toro and back and it was a different team. So yeah, I just I I don't think there's any trust, and nor should there be, for this fan base in that front office, and maybe more so the ownership group. There is no salary cap in baseball, fellas. Spend. Cost 14 bucks for a beer, for goodness sakes, at the game. It's not cheap. They're making money. They own their own television network. Like, go out there and spend some money, and they just seem to be reluctant to do so. Ian Furness, Q13 Sports, KJR as well. He joins us from Seattle today on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. I'm old enough to remember, and for younger fans, you might have to be old to remember, when the Seahawks struggled in the Eastern time zone, not so much, 12 of 13 after beating Indy on the weekend. The entire division in the NFC West starts 1-0. What did we learn about what this year's version of the Seahawks are going to be with that victory over Indianapolis? Well, it's, I, I always think it's kind of hard to say, you know, after one game, but, you know, because last year they went down to Atlanta just, you know, a night the Falcons and put up a ton of yards and big plays, but I don't think there's any mistake. You know, I mean, Scotty, you're a football guy, you know, I mean, there's no mistake that offense was different and seems to fit Russell Wilson like a glove. Uh, the motions they use, the tempo, and that doesn't mean, you know, snapping the ball with 30 seconds left on the clock. No, it's out of the huddle and being at the line of scrimmage and making a decision and change of play which he's great at doing. Uh, they did go no huddle every other series it felt like for a while. So, like, there was a lot of things different. The fly sweep, we've never seen that in Seattle. But to make that effective, you have to have the personnel. DS Grinch is that guy. You may be out this week. But, uh, you know, the timing throws to DK and, the, you know, just the innate ability of, of uh, Russell Wilson and Tyler Lockett to, to have chemistry, it just looked, it just looked better. Just looked, it just looked better, more fluid. And they didn't waste the time out on, on offense like they always do every half because they can't get the play in or Russell's confused because it doesn't, you know, it, it just, it was a better offense. So I like that. The defensive front was fantastic. They were, they were to me the star of the show. Uh, you know, Johnson Taylor was a really good running back and he got nothing going. You know, I, I'm sitting in that building in Indianapolis and they're just revved up before the game. They did a terrific, the NFL did a terrific 9-11 tribute that synced up across the league and on TV Everyone's emotional and excited, and you know the Colts go on a 940 a 9:20 drive, like almost the entire first quarter drive. They only get three out of it with a couple of big plays at the end of that drive, and that turned the game around. And then Jonathan Taylor just got smacked in the head the rest of the game, and he did nothing. He had 27 yards after three quarters, a premier running back in the NFL. And I give the credit to the guys up front; they just did a really nice job. So I like what I saw from the defense. Love what I see from the offense. It's one game, but, you know, it's one game that may be a better telltale sign than the one game last year in Atlanta to start the year. They're going to see another premier running back this coming weekend, though he and his mates in Tennessee look nothing the part in that loss to Arizona. Home opener for the Seattle Seahawks. We can get to what the anticipation for that is, given there was nobody in the building last year in just a second. But back to that offense for a second, and I agree with you about the defensive front. 
that was the star of the game, and Russell Wilson was great. He looked so in control of that offense. Gerald Everett's a name you didn't mention. He's not going to get most of the headlines, but how important a factor do you think he may play for that offense this year? I think he's a really big part of it. He's, you know, kind of a hybrid tight end. He's he's basically a little bit – he's not as thick as, like, DK, you know, which is interesting. I mean, uh, he looks – like, DK looks more like a tight end than he does maybe, but – uh, I think he. I think he adds a great element. You know, it's something they haven't really had here. They, you know, at one point, you know, they hoped Jimmy Graham, who's a little taller, obviously, but would be that pass catching tight end. But it was a different offense, and it just never. Even though he's the most most productive tight end in Seahawks single season history, it never worked out with Jimmy. Everett seems to be the perfect fit. Will Disley is a great second tight end, one of the better blocking tight ends in the league. So. And they'll go 12 personnel, two tight ends a lot. And I think as long as those guys stay healthy, they're in pretty good shape there. And, Ian, you know, you talked about the great performance that the Seahawks defensive front had against Indianapolis. And I think one of the most impressive elements of that is, I mean, they're going up against a premier offensive line there for the Colts in the NFL. Is that level of play from the defensive line and the defensive front sustainable over the course of, you know, a 17-game season for the Seahawks? Yeah, I – it was honestly probably the biggest surprise I had, to be honest with you, in that game. I, I, I just I thought they'd have all kinds of trouble up front, and they did the first drive. I mean, Quentin Nelson, their left guard, was just a monster. I mean, he, he was driving guys back and, and just, I mean, pancake block after pancake block and just physically imposing his will. Ryan Kelly, the center, the same way. And I don't know what happened, man. They came out after that, and it was a different defense. And they, they got – they were driving they, – a lot of times – you know, people talk about the blitzing, and they did do some blitzes to get home against Wentz and cause him to have happy feet. You know, he was kind of checked down Charlie. I think uh, he was 10 of 11 at one point, but only one pass to travel more than 10 yards. So, you know, as they're kind of going back and forth over everything, I, I thought that some of the games they played with the stunts and twists on the D-line really confused Indianapolis, which was fun to see. And, you know, when they did blitz, they were pretty effective. I don't know if they were as effective as they wanted to blitzing. They kept Adams in a two-deep a lot. I think he played well, about, I want to say about 65% of his snaps. Jamal Adams was in the secondary in a, in a two-deep safety look, which is old-school Pete Carroll from the USC days, but not now what you see from him. Different for Adams a little bit. So, yeah, they mixed things up. It was a terrific defensive game plan. Ian, you know, we've talked to a few people from Seattle leading into the season who kind of said, given everything that happened with Russell Wilson in the offseason, that the pressure to win – in Seattle is even higher than it is normally going into the season. I mean, this is an organization certainly under Pete Carroll and with Russell Wilson that expects to be very successful every year. Do you agree that the pressure has pressure has ratcheted up even more going into this season though? I don't know. I don't think he's, you know, these guys always say they don't feel pressure and they don't notice the outside quote noise. You know, I love that. The outside noise noise is always noise is, is an athlete's code for. We don't agree with it. You know, like, like, what's noise? Well, we, it's it's when people are saying something and it's we, we don't agree with it. That's noise. But I don't. I really think these guys. Well, first of all, I mean Pete and Russell have earned. It's the opposite of the Mariners. You know, like the Mariners don't have any equity built up whatsoever in this market, and nor should they. The Seahawks do. I mean, Pete Carroll is in his twelfth year. He's been to the playoffs ten of those first eleven or 11, it was it nine of the last ten. Only missed the playoffs twice his second year and three or four years ago um russell's only missed the playoffs once has never had a losing record his worst record nine and seven i don't think there's as much pressure maybe 
internally here in Seattle as maybe people on the outside think. But I, 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 think, that, I think any pressure that the Seahawks, Russell, or Pete have, I think it's all self-imposed. Last but certainly not least, I alluded to this a couple of minutes ago. Seahawks home opener this weekend. Fans allowed. Give us an idea of what the restrictions look like surrounding that game and the sense of anticipation in the Emerald City. Well, we have uh, um, a mask mandate indoors in public settings. And so like Sweet Love and all that. And they also have a statewide outdoor mask mandate for crowds of over 500 people, regardless of your vaccination status or your uh, uh, testing, if you get you know, a negative test. Although I watched the Mariner game last night and they, they didn't, you know, people had masks on, but I would say maybe 50-50. So I think it's going to be hard to enforce. I think it's a difficult thing to do outdoors to enforce that. Um, I understand why, and, you know, hospitals are at their limits and, and all the issues we're having here. But I think outdoor stadium settings, I, I think it's going to be hard. I think it'll be – I don't think it'll affect the crowd. I think you'll see some unfortunate incidents because, you know, I don't know how it is up in your neck of the woods. We have the masking versus anti-masking and the vax versus anti-vax and those that that are smart that understand that COVID's real and then – the absolute idiots out there that think COVID's a fake thing that for some reason. So the battles there will exist. It's, you know, it's unfortunate, but that's the world we're living in right now. I'm not going to ask you about your alma mater's football coach, because I want you to be in a good mood going into the afternoon, Ian. So thank you very much for your time today. I look forward to doing this soon. And I promise you the next time we have this conversation, it will involve hockey talk. Uh, okay, that sounds fine, and uh, yeah, I, I'll just add that you know the aforementioned idiots that would doubt my football coach at Wazoo would fall into that category of idiot. But yes, yep. Thank you. Bye, in. <laughs> See you, boys. <laughs> <laughs> he is a Washington State alum, Nick yeah. Rolovich. Despite a statewide vaccine mandate with state employees has been anti-vaccine. That's why it's been such a divisive topic in that state. You know what football means in the United States, so you understand why there are some very strong feelings on that particular coach. Well, and I mean, you know, it's not something we've had the chance to get into on the show at any point, Scotty, but, you know, we all follow people in Seattle and people who cover things in Washington State, and you just get a sense of the frustration that exists directed at Nick Rolovich down there is at a record high right now. And actually someone we've had on the show before Chris Daniels was really grilling him at a, uh, a press conference just yesterday. Like people are not pleased. And that's a really high profile position to be the head football coach at one of the two major state schools. So yeah, it's, it's been a fascinating story to watch from just on the other side of the border. We will send you over to Hockey Central with Kelly and Logan in Calgary. We will roll on here, and some hockey talk is going to permeate the airwaves in Vancouver as well. Ian McIntyre, good story up right now. He'll join us next right here on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. If you're a loyal listener to this station, you know who's coming up in just a couple minutes' time. That is the intro music for one. Ian McIntyre, Scott Rintoul, Jamie Dodd. One final hour to go on this program, but we roll into more great stuff. Sportsnet today after this with Bick Nazar and Katie Caldwell. More on that as the hour continues. Jamie, I don't know how closely you follow soccer overseas, but I'm led to believe that Manchester United has a lot of people that follow that team and care about it a lot. 
Yeah, I've heard one or two things about that. Yes, even from some people at the station here that they might be, you know, minor, minor, very casual Manchester United supporters. Something happened there? Something happened with Man U today? Yep. The vaunted, I believe, Swiss side, Young Boys, took care of business against Manchester United in the Champions League group stage today. 2-1 over Man U in the Champions League. And yes, I am paying attention because it gives me a great chance to uh, chirp at some of those (laughs) Manchester United supporters who work here at Sportsnet 650. Now, is there some side in particular that you affiliate yourself with? Nope. Which is great nope. because I'm bulletproof then, right? It's like, yeah. oh, yeah, what are you going to do? I don't I don't care. We're not going to haul Brendan Batchelor back on here because I gave him a hard enough time last <laughs> week when he answered a soccer-related question. So we won't do that to him today. But I did see a couple of our colleagues going at it. Randeep, who is an Arsenal supporter and things aren't great for his club right now, he was taking shots and Batch was replying. And you know what it's like when your team loses a big game and you're yep. – you're, taking all of the bullets at the time you just want to fire right back and and anything and everything you're just so mad about it it's really difficult as a sports fan to just sit there and take it like your team loses a big game and fans of a team that are are not doing as well come at you and the the thing you want to do first and foremost which is what they really want is for you to fire back so that the conversation continues it's the most difficult thing in the world as a sports fan to not actually go on about it and to actually take your lumps see that's why you just gotta put the phone down you know go for a walk put on some music do something relaxing get away from the social media firestorm a little bit because nothing good nothing good comes of that right when you're getting into those arguments online you got to find another outlet yeah I mean, I was this close. I'll probably do it in the next five minutes at some point <laughs> if I can. I was this close because Randeep and, and Batch were going back and forth on it and taking yeah. shots. I, I just about weighed into the chat saying, you guys want to talk some baseball? Is that what you guys – no? <laughs> Randeep is a Yankees fan, so a little bit of salvation for him yesterday when it looked like the Yankees were going to blow another game. They were down 5 nothing, so it's not exactly blowing it, but – they are a much better outfit than the Minnesota Twins. Batch is a Red Sox fan, and as you may have noticed, Jamie, things not going particularly yep. well for that team. No, no, it's um, there. I, I can actually confirm because I saw them on the weekend that both Randeep and Batch are shaking in their boots at the thought of what the Toronto Blue Jays are doing right now. Not a lot of optimism to go around on the baseball side for those two. No, nor should there be. And with the way the Red Sox started, you understand why there was so much. And the Yankees, the way they're built, everybody just assumed that's the team to beat. Tampa Bay will take a little step back this season. Got rid of Blake Snell. The sell-off begins. They'll be competitive, but not what they were last year in going to the World Series in a truncated season. Not so much. Best team in the AL, and yet the Jays dusted them, too. What a heater the Toronto Blue Jays are on. We'll tee up for that a little bit later on. In the hour, we are going to turn our attention to hockey here momentarily. Ian McIntyre, as mentioned, is going to join us here. He's got a good piece up on Thatcher Demko right now. I heard Justin Bourne on the morning show today with Halford and Bruff say, like, Thatcher Demko, there's a case to be made. He might be one of the best goalies, bar none, in the National Hockey League this season. I don't think he was suggesting it's Andre Vasilevsky territory, but he's that highly thought of in NHL circles right now that he could make that jump. Well, that's it, right? It's not that he's there right now, but he feels like he has a chance to jump into that kind of echelon. And I know the guys on the People Show yesterday afternoon were kind of having this discussion. Okay, 
which Canucks players could plausibly get into the, you know, top 10 conversation at their position in the NHL, right? Okay, maybe Pedersen does if he has a great year, maybe Quinn Hughes, but Demko might have the strongest case of anyone, and he might have the easiest path. Not that it's easy per se, but you know what I mean. He might have the most direct path to truly being considered one of the elite goalies in the NHL. Ian McIntyre has a great piece on him. We'll talk about that and much more as he joins us here today. Ian, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? I'm doing very well. What's this wet, gray stuff outside? I don't I recognize I hear it's rain. <laughs> yeah, I hear it's rain. We've had a pretty nice run here overall, although it's been oh. raining at night and sunny in the days. Yeah, well, you know, that's nice. That's, nice. that's a nice combination. We have had a pretty good run. I can't remember, and I know people don't want to hear me talk about the weather, but I, I can't remember, and I've lived my whole life here, uh, where it's not just like we had a nice summer, but it's hard to remember what last winter felt like because that's how good spring was. Like April, May, June, that just felt fantastic too. But it feels, you know, school's back in. My kids are at university, and it now feels like school weather. It really does. And the heat wave this summer probably made it difficult on your garden. How did it fare this summer? Well, the the tomatoes actually liked it, Scott. And thank you very much for asking. Uh, the well-being of my garden is never far from the forefront of my mind. But things did uh, dry out a little bit. Some of the other veggies, not so good. But that's probably my fault for not watering as regularly as I should. But the tomatoes and basil, they love the heat and they go well together, like you guys on a show. Thank you. That's very nice. I, I, I'm, I'm wondering Scotty's if you made... ginger, though, so... I'm not sure if yeah. he loves the heat, like the tomatoes do. <laughs> maybe, maybe Faber is the uh, Boccaccini. Yes, I was, about to, I was about to say if, if you were going to make a Caprizi salad, but you've already answered that question. You, are you a man you supporter, by the way? Uh, no. No, I'm not. Okay. I am not. I didn't know if but you had I, to get you into know what? I, I don't – I'm not one of these guys. I, I have a couple of teams I like more than others, but I don't – pay attention enough to have the moral authority to hate anybody else's team it used to be i used to devote more time and energy to it but no so man united what do you want to talk about man united well they got upset in champions Renault, league today oh okay i didn't see that by the swiss by, young by, boys. by by whom swiss young boys oh <laughs> <laughs> see you're not that mature you're not that mature yet <laughs> uh, the, you know, I, I I am aware of the team, the, the young boys. Yes, well, you know those young boys there; they have youth on their side. They certainly do. Ian McIntyre Mac- yeah. joining us here today. Sportsnet's Triple Threat was on Rento and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. That all was right. all a setup just so you could say Swiss young boys took. Them yes, down, right? that's it. Yes, I just exactly. wanted to be able to say that in context that was just fitting for this program. All right, let's move on to some of the youth on the Vancouver Canucks. You talked to part of that youth movement. He is Thatcher Demko. How different is he from the player you talked to, the, from the player you saw a couple of years ago? Well, the, the in talking to him, he's he's always been that guy because I remember Thatcher Demko at the first um, uh, prospects camp. This is the summer, the orientation camp where they bring in mostly the guys they've just drafted the college kids that maybe they drafted a year before. And I remember talking to Thatcher at uh, Shawnigan Lake, I believe it was in Vancouver Island in, in a July and there's nobody around and just being, I think at that time he was 19 years old and just being struck by how 
how this guy has it all together mentally. <laughs> like he was, he was mature. He was articulate. He was thoughtful, but he also had a plan for himself. Like he was clearly a guy who had a lot of belief in himself and, and had a plan on how to become the player that, that he envisioned. And all I've seen since then, frankly, is he's continued that plan. What last year did for him uh, physically, he was just, you know, performing at the level he did. It just showed that he, he's, he is ready for this step now, and this step being, being an NHL starting goalie. But talking to him the other day, I mean, the plan isn't to stop there, right? The, the plan is to be as good as he can be. And that, that means being an elite goalie. And whether, uh, you know, as per uh, Justin Bourne's you know, assertion, a top 10, um, I think that's, that's well within his, his possibilities, capabilities. I mean, you can look at last year even. And he he was he was kind of and I would admit this he was erratic at times right he was terrible in his first three starts then he was good and trended to fantastic and then he got COVID and then he was beaten up by COVID and wasn't very good when he came back and then at the end of the year and I mentioned this in my my story on Sportsnet.ca at the end of the year he played possibly his most impressive hockey because at a time where the team was absolutely hollowed out it was. It was running on vapors. Uh, he himself was not 100%. He had, he had struggled coming out of COVID. Well, he somehow got back and played probably his best hockey of the season over, over his final six starts. And Ian Clark, his goalie coach, said that, that that was maybe the most impressive thing about his season. So when you, when you actually dig into his statistics, you look at some of the, if you can get the proprietary statistics for goalies about expected goals saved, um, and even on the public websites, he, he trends well on all of them. But you could make the argument that he was a top 10 goalie last year, but I, I think he's that good, and I think he's going to be even better this year than he was last year. The other thing that strikes me about reading your piece with Demko is the way he's speaking like more – of, of as one of the leaders of this team and that's been a topic in vancouver for the last couple of years some of the leadership that's here to shepherd the young players into that role i'm not saying you get rid of all the vets or anything like that not at all but if we reach that point now ian where it is the young players who form the balance of leadership on this roster well, well, you hope it will be, and and in practical terms, it almost has to be because there just aren't that many um, experienced players, and then experienced players with tenure. Uh, it pretty much stops at what Brandon Sutter. I'm trying to think. I mean, Oliver Ekman Larson, obviously, ton of experience. He'll be a leader, but he's new to the group. Uh, Hamannick, uh, second year with the group. Uh, Shen has just come back, and he has to find his spot on the roster. Uh, I'm trying to think up front, you know, Tyler Mott has, has been here a while, but he's not an older player. So it has to be. Uh, it, the, I think the, the story of free agency f- from uh, 2020, where the Canucks uh, saw that conga line of, of incumbents leaving the organization. Uh, I've said before, I think the biggest mistake the Canucks made in that wasn't necessarily matching contracts to keep Chris Tanev and Jacob Markstrom and Troy Stetcher, but it was, it was underestimating the impact that losing them would have on the culture of the team. Uh, And culture is another word for, 
for leadership. And so there, there was a void after that. And I think it, it's really important that people like Thatcher Demko, Brock Besser, who, believe it or not, is the fourth longest tenured player now on the Canucks. Uh, and, of course, Pedersen and Hughes uh, in time. It's really important for these guys to step forward and, and yes, take, take those reins of leadership because they're going to be driving the team on the ice. And there aren't a lot of uh, experienced older players left, uh, especially ones who, who have been around long enough to, to speak up in the dressing room. So it is important. Uh, and uh, I found it interesting that he said that as well when, when, he, when I asked him about what he's trying to accomplish this year. He talked about consistency on the ice and maybe uh, taking more of a leadership position off of it. Well, and Ian, when you talk about leadership with the Canucks, of course, you have to talk about the captain, Bo Horvat, as well. And, you know, he's another player that all of a sudden he's one of the longest tenured players with the team. He's, you know, 26, so not even particularly young by NHL standards anymore. And I know you had the chance to chat with him uh, last week, I believe it was, and he had some comments about encouraging everyone to get vaccinated. It really does seem like he has fully embraced and completely grown into being the captain and being the the kind of first among equals as leaders on this team. Yeah, and the interesting thing now that we, we're pivoting from Demko to Horvat is he had that same aura, and a lot more people saw it because he was in the NHL at 19. But he was an old soul when he was 19 and has always um, brought uh, a maturity to the game, even when he was a young player. And he's he's although he's a young man, you're right, he's not a young player anymore. Seven seasons going into number eight he he's the longest serving canuck now and he has always uh, uh i think embraced the idea of leading from the front you know he's not and there aren't many really uh, loud spoken guys uh, you know the i think people one of the misconceptions that people outside of a hockey team or probably any sports team for that matter have is about leadership is they think it's it's always the loudest voice and compelling speeches and at times physical confrontation, which is ridiculous. Like nobody grabs a teammate, you know, by the shirt to get him to play better. Um, But it has everything to do with, with how you conduct yourself, not just during games, but how you conduct yourself in practice. How are you when you arrive at the rink? What kind of attitude do you have? What kind of training did you do? Uh, in the off season, and Horvat has always had that, so it it doesn't surprise me that he has evolved and is evolving into the leader that he is. He he wants has always wanted that responsibility, and and certainly doesn't shy away from it. And I love the fact that he will kind of get out of his lane at times, like he did with me last week, where he told said he hopes wasn't telling anyone what to do but he said he hopes all his teammates get vaccinated because it's just better for everybody it's better health wise it's better for uh how the team operates how it travels how the players can be together on the road it's just it just makes sense on so many levels i'm glad he said what he did well i agree with you and i think it reflects you know he sees the role not just as leading the hockey team but being a leader in the community as well and, and he's in such a high profile position in vancouver and british columbia that there's a lot of truth to that and i agree with you it's great to see him uh embrace it you know another canuck who's doing the the media tour thing in Toronto right now is one of the newcomers jason dickinson and i saw he made some comments i believe it was to jeff merrick and elliot friedman on 31 thoughts saying 
you know, the Canucks have been very upfront with me that they haven't said, okay, this is where you're going to play in the lineup. They've said, be flexible, be ready to do different things on different nights. And I think just looking at the forward group in general, it does seem to be a much more versatile group. How much of an asset will that versatility and flexibility be for Travis Green and his coaching staff this year? Well, all coaches. I mean, the first thing that any coach will tell you is he wants good players and as many of them as possible. And then beyond that, he wants versatility. He wants options. He, he wants a choice to play uh, a guy, in Travis's case, like Jason Dixon. He can play the third-line center. But who says he can't play first-line wing? And when I say that, I'm not projecting him to be a 30-goal scorer if he plays with Elias Pettersson and, and Brock Besser. But he certainly has, seeing him last week at UBC, he has a ton of speed and size and skill. And he can keep up with those guys. And if he adds, if he adds some physicality and an element of grit and size to uh, a top six line, then that's great. Uh, personally, uh, I think third line center has been such a big hole, black hole for this team that, you know, they now have a guy who can do that. Let's try it and see. But I, I know that the Travis isn't, isn't uh, wed to this idea that Dickinson has to be uh, quote unquote a matchup center, that he can play him farther up the line. And of course, if you play him on the wing, maybe you play JT Miller at, at center. Uh, I think I think the options that Canucks have, and then you have guys who can play sorry, guys who can play either wing as well, which is important. And you can have you even have guys say even somebody like Nils Hoaglander who showed last season a real defensive awareness so you can play him against good players or if you have a line that you're matching against the other team's best line but you could also play him in an offensive role Connor Garland uh you know great skill and I think is going to be a really good player with this team especially with the opportunity he's going to be given and the belief that the organization is showing in him already that he didn't feel in Arizona I think he's I think he's going to be great but there's more to his toolbox than just contributing offense you know he he does a lot more so he's another guy you can play him in different different ways and so often it seemed um in recent years you know when Travis Green had to look for his third line center or his first line winger I mean it was by default he had no choices and sometimes the the only choice he had wasn't a great one. Now, right now, with everybody healthy and supposing that everyone's in camp and signed and 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 vaccinated, uh, they have more options, I think, than they've had probably any time since since the team was was broken up after the last Stanley Cup. They have at front. I'm talking. About, I'm not talking about defense. We all know they still have issues there, but up front, this is the deepest, most talented, most versatile group they've had since the remnants of the cup final team was dispersed as the old saying goes deadlines spur action there is a soft deadline in the middle of next week that is because training camp starts in the middle of next week for the vancouver canucks if you're a betting man are elias Pettersson and quinn hughes suited up for the first practice of training camp that is an excellent question scotty uh it's, it's a no-brainer if you're going to say here for the start of the season. I don't know if they're going to be there for the first practice at training camp. Brock Besser was not. Oh, Horvat was barely. They signed they signed Horvat during the uh, 
the uh, Young Stars tournament in Penticton. So he was ready to go. Like, I think it was two days later at camp or three days later camp started. Uh, I, I'm going to say yes, but <laughs> I'm going to qualify and say I could be wrong, although everybody knows that because it's me. I, I just think, you know, they've, they've had so long uh, to have a kick at this. And, you know, neither side is, has divulged much uh, at all about what the negotiations have been. But at this point, I think it's safe to assume they've talked about long-term deals. They've gone short-term. They've gone medium-term, which is kind of a new thing that we, we've seen with, with franchise players, where maybe a guy doesn't sign for seven or eight years. Maybe he signs for five years. We just saw, you know, Thatcher Demko, five-year contract. I think they've talked about those. And uh, to be captain obvious here, nothing nothing has gained traction. They haven't been able to figure anything out. So I think by this stage, they're probably looking at, okay, let's what works just to get them signed and have them in? And those are probably bridge deals. And then you take another you take another run at this in in two or three years. I, I think that's reading the tea leaves. I think that's where it's going. But the fact that you know, there's no deal, and here we are, second week of, of September, and and the Canucks have money. They they don't have enough money to do two long-term deals, but they have enough money to do one, plus a bridge. And the fact that even with that with that flexibility, the Canucks have financially, which they didn't have when the off season began, there is still no deal in place for these guys. So it, it wouldn't surprise me if it if it goes a while, a little while longer. I sure hope they're there for training camp. This question may surprise you, but I know you'll be convicted one way or the other. It is Taco <laughs> Tuesday. Does Taco Salad qualify for Taco Tuesday? No, of course not. Of course not. Yes, thank you, Ian. Thank you. It's a salad. It's not what a taco. What is wrong with you? It's, it's a, a deconstructed salad. taco. <laughs> Which is another way of saying not a taco. When you oh, say, my goodness. Let me ask you this, Scotty. When somebody says yes. taco to you, What's the first ingredient you think of in taco? The taco the meat. The taco. No. No, the no, taco you're, meat, you're, Ian. You're lying. You're lying. I'm That's not lying. Thing. No question I'm thinking the taco meat. Wrap. But meat is generic. You're saying just generally you'll think about chicken or pork or beef or the shrimp. The next thing you're going to tell me, the next thing you're going to tell me is that you're a hard taco guy. Not since I was a kid. No, I'm I'm soft. I'm tortilla tortilla wrap guy. Oh, so now you're probably saying a burrito qualifies, but a taco salad (laughs) doesn't. Like, this is what you're telling me now? Good point. Good point. (laughs) Thank you. But taco salad salad is not taco. The only way way it's taco is that it's called a taco salad. It's not a taco. Don't be ridiculous. Taco chips could be a taco bowl that it's served in. I have many ways to deconstruct Uh, your argument here. I've been doing this all morning. You're going to have to go to Eddie Lack for the definitive word on this. We'll find out later today, perhaps. Maybe he will be on with the People Show and answer that question. I thank you very much, sir, for your comments on Young Boys, Taco Salad, and, of course, the Vancouver Canucks when we can mix that in as well. The Young Boys are probably celebrating with tacos right now, but the real thing, (laughs) not just the salad, not just the filling, the actual shell. Thank you, Ian. See you guys. That is Ian McIntyre. He agrees with you, Jamie. We've had a real split vote in the inbox today. I think on guests, I'm two for three, right? Donovan uh, and IMAC are on you... my side. Well, Donovan was kind of half and half. You, you, exactly. you started to break him down exactly. at the end there. So maybe it's 
Maybe it's one and a half to one and a half so far. I don't know. And if I had more time, I'd have another convert in McIntyre. I can tell you that. <laughs> I, my wife will tell you. I just won't stop arguing at times. I sometimes just feel the need to be stubborn. I know that's going to come as a surprise to many. We started that interview with talking about the big loss for Man U that a lot of people are fretting over. That is nowhere near the biggest loss today. We'll tell you what is next right here on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Burt Reynolds. That's not my name. <laughs> okay. Turd Ferguson. <laughs> yeah, what do you want? You buzzed in. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. Yeah, well, that's your opinion. There is suddenly the late Norm Macdonald. Rest in peace. To the Canadian comedic legend, I believe. He was so, so oh, yeah. funny. That's part of one of the recurring Saturday Night Live characters he had as Burt Reynolds, or in that case, Turd Ferguson. We find out today, Jamie, that at the age of 61, sadly, Norm Ferguson has left us after a private and lengthy battle with cancer. Yeah, really, really tough news. I mean, I think anyone who enjoys comedy in almost any capacity enjoyed norm mcdonald tremendously like just always you could rely on him to make you laugh and you look at you know his saturday night live appearances which we heard a little bit there he was also just an incredible like guest on any late night talk show he would always make the show 10 times funnier than it was before he had come on and i'll always remember him i think from you know doing weekend update on snl first and foremost but just an incredible run of making people laugh over and over and over again he was so funny on Weekend Update, and he's one of the underrated all-time anchors on that program. There have been some greats, but he was so yep. good in just the understated way he did things. I remember one bit he did something along the lines of, uh, turns out Tommy Lee has left longtime girlfriend Heather Locklear this week, and he is now dating Pamela Anderson. You can read more about this in my book, Tommy Lee, The Greatest Man Who Ever Lived. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's just he was awesome on that he was i think underappreciated for just his cameos in some of the sandler movies i'm a huge billy madison fan because that to me is adam sandler at his rawest yep. it's not the best movie of the bunch but it's the one that makes me laugh the bunch and he was just one of billy's drunk friends by the pool and he was massive and uh you know on he really kind of I don't want to say burst onto the scene, but I think what a lot of people, what he first started gaining attention for doing Weekend Update on SNL was the O.J. Simpson trial, right? Because that was obviously a massive, massive news story for a long time. So it gets a ton of coverage on SNL. And the the clip, one of the clips that I'll always think of first and foremost with Norm is, I think it was just the, it would have been the Saturday after the verdict came out. And it was just, you know, our top story, murder is now legal in the state of California. And it <laughs> always makes me laugh every time I think about it. Apparently, I, I called him Norm Ferguson. I meant to say Turd Ferguson as well as that <laughs> character. I, I mixed up his real name with his his character's persona there when he was doing the Burt Reynolds skit. Thanks for those who are keeping us accountable here on the program today. And the other thing about Norm, he wasn't afraid to be edgy before other people. And not that he's nope. the first edgy comedian. And he's not the edgiest comedian of all time either. But you have to remember this clip we're going to play for you in a second is from 1998. Now, this is a type of joke that would have made 10 years later, 15 years later. There are not a lot of people, certainly in this setting, 
that would have been willing to make this joke while hosting the ESPYs in 1998. Have a listen. And there's Charles Woodson. How about that? I want a season he had. Great, Andy. He became the first defensive player to win the Heisman Trophy. Congratulations, Charles. That is something that no one can ever take away from you. Unless you kill your wife and a waiter, in which case... (laughs) All deaths are off. It's a word of advice. There weren't a lot of people making that (laughs) joke in a mainstream environment in 1998, Jamie, about O.J. Simpson. Nope, there wasn't. But that's that was for a long time. It was he was kind of known as the guy who would go there about OJ, right? Like he gained a lot of fans and a lot of attention for being willing to go there. Oh boy, was he ever! Did you ever see him do stand up? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, went a few. Oh years no, ago no, not live in person. No, no, no. He no, came no. to the River Rock in Richmond a few years ago, and I took my wife and we went. And some friends of mine went as well. He was awesome. Every once in a while, you see somebody who's a comedian. They do it on television. They do it in movies. And you don't know how, how it's going to translate anymore to the stage. Because there are some comedians who, once they get to that level of stardom, they kind of lose their stage presence. and They lose their touch, the thing that got them there in the first place. He was so good. He was so good. And it was direct in direct contrast to my experience going to watch one of his former Saturday Night Live castmates david spade years ago at the same venue i went and saw david spade and I thought, oh, this is gonna be great i liked spade in some of the movie stuff and i liked spade on saturday night live and it was bad it was awful and maybe he's just having a bad day maybe it was just one show that bombed but i left there with a completely different impression and with norm my experience was enhanced and my adoration for him was enhanced um, that doesn't surprise me that he was great right till, you know, the, his later days. No surprise, whatever. Because every time he pops up anywhere, as I said, he makes whatever he's appearing in that much funnier. Um, another, I mean, we could just, like, swap favorite bits and jokes forever here, right? But another one that's, like, top of my mind when I think of Norm MacDonald, you go have to go way, way back to the early days of Conan O'Brien when he was still on at, like, 1230 oh, or whatever yeah. <laughs> on NBC. Oh, yeah. And Norm had been one of the first, one of the, like, earlier guests on the show. But you know how sometimes they stick around. And it's some, I think she was on Melrose Place, some actress who who had made a movie with Carrot Top, who is the next guest. And she's out there promoting that on Conan. And she says, oh, you know, you know, we don't really have a title yet for the movie yet. And Norm just pipes in, you and Carrot Top? I bet they call it Box Office Poison. <laughs> and the poor, <laughs> the poor actress there is just stuck in this interview. And it, it goes on, and there's even funnier <laughs> jokes after that. But I would highly, highly recommend checking that clip out. It's probably the hardest I've ever seen the host laugh at something, because even Conan cannot keep it in when, when Norm is there kind of roasting the whole situation. Someone texting in every couple of months, I go down the rabbit hole of Norm MacDonald guest appearances on late night shows, alluding to what you're talking about there, Jamie. Someone else saying, Norm MacDonald's best weekend update joke. This is in the opinion of the texter. This Christmas season's best selling toy? Tickle Me Elmo. Needless to say, this year's worst selling toy, you guessed it, Tickle Me Frank Stallone. Legend. <laughs> Legend, says the texter. Rest in peace. Yeah, there's a couple I can think of from Saturday Night Live that, ah. Maybe in poor taste. So I'm I'm going to leave them at this point in time, Jamie. Yep. But needless to say, he will be missed. He made a lot of people laugh. And 
here's the other part. I know we're doing a sports show. We're not doing a, a general entertainment show. He was a massive sports fan. Anybody who yep. followed him on Twitter in the last number of years, like Norm would just sit there and live tweet golf golf events. Yep. Huge sports fan. It was, it was great. It was it made it really, really entertaining to follow him. He was awesome. Really well done. I'm sure we'll get more texts coming in. 650-650, Dunbar Lumber text message inbox if you want in on this conversation. We'll begin a little bit here, Jamie, to look ahead to what lies ahead today. Middle game set for the Toronto Blue Jays, Tampa Bay Rays. The Toronto Blue Jays, and I think maybe by virtue of doing what they did, it's only one game. It's only one game, but they've reached this point with this run and how much belief the fan base seems to have in this group that they're not afraid of anybody. Is that fair to say? It certainly feels like that, right? And, I mean, if you tuned into the broadcast last night, I mean, you heard about the struggles that they've had against Ryan Yarbrough, right? And they did not struggle against him. That was the Rays' starting pitcher. They didn't struggle against him at all last night. And he's been one of the guys who's kind of been their kryptonite over the years and this season, or even earlier this season. So I don't think they should be afraid of anyone. Why would you be when you're, you know, hitting the way they are right now? I said it before, and I don't think it's a revelatory take. If they get into the postseason, at this point, they should. And if they get through the wild card, which is basically a coin flip, the way they're going, if they continue on this hot streak, they'll be favored in that game, Jamie. But we know anything can happen in a one-off. You can just have a bad day at the plate. You can have your pitcher, who's your ace, just struggle a little bit, and it's over before you even go. So we all know that. If they get into the main portion of the playoffs, they do hold the title of the team nobody wants to play. Like, nobody wants to play this team the way it's going right now. No, 100% not. No, And that's not just, you know, the Red Sox and Yankees who want no part of them and don't want to be part of a wild card game against them. I'm sure there are White Sox fans. I'm sure there are Astros fans who look at this and say, man, I do not want to be involved in that in a divisional series. The Rays, I don't want to be involved in that in a divisional series. They are that hot right now, and it's it doesn't no part of it feels like a fluke. Like obviously there's amount there's a certain amount of luck to go on this kind of tear where you're hitting it like this over a span of two to two, two or three weeks. That's not sustainable. I get that. But you also just look at the lineup and what Donovan Bennett said earlier on our show, right? There's there's not a lot of weak spots in the lineup at this point. There's not a lot of weak spots in the rotation. The bullpen, yeah, is still a question mark. It's been a little better, but you just look at the lineup and you look at the starting rotation, they have the talent to back up what they're doing here. Yes, they do. And it's fun. I worry a little bit about elements of the pitching staff right now. The concern primarily has been with the bullpen, and for very good reason with yep. the number of games that they blew. Count me among those who's somewhat worried about Hyunjin Ryu. Hyunjin Ryu, I should say. Jamie, I worry a little bit about the fatigue here late in the season. We're not talking about an overpowering pitcher, obviously. He's a guy who needs to pitch rather than just throw. We saw last year in, in the playoff game that he pitched, like two miles an hour off of his top end makes a world of difference. If he can't hit his top end of his fastball, which is low 90s, if he's not doing that, it's trouble for him. And so I worry about the arm fatigue with him. It's not as though they don't have other options. I was thoroughly encouraged by what I saw from Alec Manoa last night. Robbie Ray has been great this season. Starting pitching has been the type of strength that nobody thought they were going to have this year. I do worry about Ryu a little bit at this point. It's fair 
the other thing, though, is, I mean, you go back to the start of the year, right? And Ryu was the clear-cut number one ace. You need him to be fantastic. Now, all of a sudden, I mean, if you're in a wildcard game, is he the fourth choice to take the mound, right? Like, Robbie Ray is clearly number one. Then it's probably Barrios. Then I think you would have to have Manoa ahead of Ryu at this point right now. Now, maybe not because Ryu's a veteran, Manoa's so young, but I think you could plausibly make the argument that, you know, Ryu would be way down there as your kind of fourth choice to take the mound. So it's worrisome from a sense of, hey, this guy was supposed to be your ace, and you don't 100% feel like you can rely on him, but... The flip side of it is, hey, at least these other guys have stepped up, and you feel really good about Robbie Ray and others right now. They look to make it, what, 13-1 and in the month of September if they're able to beat Tampa Bay yep. and, and win this series before the conclusion. I told you yesterday going into this series, they did enough this weekend, and they've done enough in putting themselves in a good spot that even if they were only to get one of three, it wouldn't feel like the end of the world with what they have left on their schedule. I still feel the same way. It's baseball, so I'm going to temper my expectations accordingly. But there's not that same fear right now with the Tampa Bay Rays. Hey, they're on a hot streak. Everything feels good. This isn't going to continue hitting at over 331 and crushing home runs every single night. I'm not sure it's going to just all of a sudden fall off a cliff, though, either. No, I don't think it's going to go back to, you know, the middle of August when they couldn't buy a hit and they were having trouble just putting one or two runs on the board a night. I don't think we're going to see that. It'll level off, but, you know, as I was saying, the talent level in this lineup, even leveling off, they're still going to be incredibly dangerous, and they're going to be very, very scary for opposing pitching staffs. Home cooking makes a difference, man. They are 11 games over 500 at Rogers Center this year. Prior to getting there, and anybody who's followed this team knows the trials and tribulations. They started in Florida, then they were playing in Buffalo. They were 500. Like, for a team that has been as good as they have been overall this year, being 500 at quote-unquote home, that's not good enough. It, it was the lowest. I remember at one point, Jamie, it was the worst home record of any team over 500 in the American League just on, on the balance of the schedule. They've gotten back to Rogers Center. It has served them well, 18-7 and seven there so far. And they have 11 of their final 18 games at home this season. Man, you think of what a difference that might make for a wild card game just with the way this team is built yep. and with the firepower they bring and the type of ballpark that is for hitters. Well, and it would have been so it would have been so tough. And now they probably don't go on this run if they're not back playing in Toronto. But just imagine if they're closing in on a wild card game and the opportunity to host a wild card game but you're still playing in Buffalo, and you know at that game that means it's going to be all Yankees fans or all Red Sox fans or whoever you end up playing, right? You're not even going to have a true home field advantage in that game. So, I mean, it means everything. The ability to play at home, the ability to have your fans in the stands cheering you on. We've seen what it's meant for this team, and yeah, all of a sudden, I mean, for, they've gone from just, oh, maybe we can squeak into that second wild card spot to, hey, we should be hosting this game. That's the expectation now. Are you more worried right now if you're a Yankees fan or a Red Sox fan? Oh, man, that's tough. That is very tough. I think I would be more worried if I was a Red Sox fan because their kind of dip in play dates back a lot longer, right? Like, we've we've kind of seen this coming for a long time. The Yankees, at least you feel... Okay, this is just an incredibly hot and cold team. They're in the cold stretch right now, but we've seen how good they can be when they're hot, and maybe they find a way to replicate some of that in the final two weeks of the season, right? That would be my hope. I think the Yankees have more upside than the Red Sox. I don't. I just don't think the Red Sox, there's not a lot of juice there for me. So it's close, 
I would be more worried as a Red Sox fan, though. And yet, here's the one thing that Boston fans can cling to, six games remaining against Baltimore. Yep, that's fair. They've got 16 now, games left, six against Baltimore, three against the Washington Nationals, two against the Mets. They only have five games against decent teams left, three of them against the Yankees. In the remaining two games of this series they're playing right now down in Seattle. Now, the the only the flip side of that is with the Yankees, they do still have the series against the Jays, right? Now, you could look at that and say, oh, man, we have to play the Jays again the way they're going right now. We want no part of that. I understand that, but you can also look at it and say, hey, at least we have a chance to make up ground against the team we're chasing, right? And Boston doesn't have that opportunity anymore. They're done their series sweep, their series season, or season series, excuse me, with the Red Sox. The Yankees do still have a chance to go head-to-head with the Jays. That's a double-edged sword, as I understand. You know, it means you're playing a good team down the stretch as well, but maybe it gives you a chance to make up some ground in kind of a last-ditch effort. Well, the Yankees get an opportunity today. They will take on those Orioles that the Jays just batted around the park for three of the final four games of that series. Got some breaking news of sorts to announce for Sportsnet. We're getting one of our own back here, Jamie. Cabby, Cabral Richards is returning to Canada. He's been working in Vegas, doing the gambling thing in Vegas, some different streaming uh, programming that he's been working on for the last few years. I just saw him make the announcement here in the last number of minutes on Twitter. He is betting on Sportsnet. In fact, he's going to be doing the gambling thing for our network. I've always found him amusing. I like how creative he's been as a broadcaster over the years. This is a very good news situation for Canadian viewers. Yeah, he is, I would say, I mean, I certainly think certainly for people of my vintage, like a beloved sports broadcasting figure in Canada. And it's pretty cool actually seeing the video that he put uh, out announcing it is him going on the Tim and Fred set and kind of reacquainting uh, with our pal, Tim McAuliffe, who of course, of course joins us every Wednesday. And people who have been watching sports for a long time here will remember them, of course, from their days on the score. And it's always fascinating to look back on the score and just the incredible amount of talent that it produced and that are still doing their thing on the airwaves in some capacity uh, in Canada. But pretty cool reunion to see like two kind of originals at the score getting back together, reuniting under the Sportsnet umbrella now. I've heard these guys talk about it before, and we don't need to go down the rabbit hole tomorrow the entire time. But in this market, we often talk about a place that I was fortunate enough to work, Sports Page, and everything yep. that has become for so many people that worked there and and what an incredible place it was to build talent and the eye Paul Carson had and go down the list Barry McDonald choosing people later on in the in that show's history the score was kind of what that was back east to a certain extent a different operation and I know it was a national thing but it was never seen on the same level as Sportsnet or as TSN but the eye that they had for talent in that organization and the broadcasters that that have come out of it is incredible it really is. It's pretty remarkable when you look at it. And I would also just say some of the, not just with the talent, but some of the kind of format innovation, right? Like even mm-hmm. what Cabby was doing was was humorous. It was light. It was, and now that's so much more prevalent. I would think back to something like court surfing, right? With, with Tim and Sid, where you're just, you know, flipping around between basketball games and there's an element of shooting the breeze, getting some jokes in, getting some commentary in. I think that was very ahead of its time as well. Yeah, they were given a wider range. Like, they were given more of a blank canvas to operate with, and they took advantage of it. And, and hey, Tim will tell you this. Cabby will tell you. Not everything worked. Our own Caroline yep. Frolic, that's where she began her career and burst onto the national scene as well. I'm sure she would tell you the exact same thing. 
but they were allowed to try things, and a bunch of them worked. They've helped form the broadcasters that you see and you love and you listen to and, and watch today, and, man, it was it was a good place for a lot of up-and-coming broadcasters that people across this country really really do still love to this day. Yeah, and, I again, just really excited to see Cabby back doing his thing in Canada and on Sportsnet. Let's go. Cabby's the best interviewer in North America, says Logan the Stripper. He can make his guests <laughs> do and say things that no one else can. We welcome anyway. Unlike you and your taco salad take, I am inclusive. Everybody welcome on this program. That's You're right. very inclusive right. of, of our listeners. You're just not inclusive yes. of taco salad here today. Not, not, I draw the line at taco salad. We are going to turn things over to Sportsnet today. Jamie and I will be back at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. Big shout-out to Chris Faber, who was on his own, did a great job opping today. Big ups to you back at Mission Control. Roger Shergill, another fine program that you organized today as the producer of this show. We're going to leave you with a little bit of humor from Norm MacDonald. Rest in peace to a Canadian comedic legend. This was also from that ESPYs broadcast. We will talk to you tomorrow morning. Well, how about them Winter Olympics? They're finally underway, so we've got a lot of great stuff to look forward to in the next two weeks, like uh, hockey and, uh, well, just hockey, really. (laughs)